When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and I answered them as best I could. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast, where I try to take the questions of the day and do my best to answer them. Today at church, I'm going to put on vestments. Vestments are robes. They're uh, I'll be wearing a couple of them today, a cassock, a black robe. Since it's pretty cold out, like around 50 degrees here, which is cold for Texas, I'll be wearing uh, a double-breasted cassock. It's like got more layers, and uh, I don't wear it in the hot weather. And over that goes a long surplus. surplus. It's a white garment with big sleeves. And then a stole, a stole goes over that. And that's the vestments I'm going to wear today in a couple hours. And other Sundays I wear other vestments similar to that and different long robes. And that is the very thing that Jesus denounces in his opening speech today. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. So this is a tough day for those of us long robe people. Wearing robes in American society today is only done by a few people, Renaissance festival attendees, although I see a lot of pirates and other pants-wearing people at these events, few and fewer robes from men. He is talking about men here, not dresses, not women's clothing. He's talking about men with privilege, prestige, the scribes, the people who hold the sacred texts, which are the law codes. These are the lawyers. Um, These are the writers. These are the people that call the shots and can make things happen. Um, They are religious leaders, but not completely in the way we think of it. Today's religious leaders are part of a whole separate system of governance and ideology and influence. Religious leaders have a lot of influence today. Don't don't get me wrong on that. But uh, in America, we don't um, sit in the House of Lords as they do in England. And even they don't have as much influence as they used to have. We live in the era of separation of church and state a relatively recent concept that we are attempting in the modern era. doesn't always go so well. Um, it's easy for progressive people to look at right-wing religious figures in Congress. But if you were to dig down a little deeper into most politicians' lives and thought and ideology, you'd find that Concepts that we often think of as purely religious are what motivates them. And perhaps they don't tie it to a certain faith um, verbally, but that was something that people have only had to do recently. Before that, there wasn't much um, need for people to distinguish between their political life and their religious life, if you will. Certainly, the first kings were were divine descendants, and even into the Japanese emperors and kings of England and others. Um, in the very modern era, we have people that have claimed 
this sort of divine descendants and the, thus fusing the roles of religion and government into one. Democracy is an attempt to break free from that. And yet we find the more we try to break free from these things, um, that they're still with us in many ways. Many of the controversies that we experience in American democracy today are essentially religious controversies. Um, and yet, even though we say religion is a private matter that no one should really mess with. And so these scribes, they walk around in their long robes. They get greeted in the marketplace with respect. They get the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at the banquets. This is the good life. I mean, I like wearing long robes. I like getting respect in the marketplace, at the coffee shop, at the bar. And I like to sit at places of honor. And I like having a special little chair reserved for me that I just slide into. No waiting in line, no crowding in the back, no queuing up. None of those things for me. Slide right in to my little seat. One of the things I've enjoyed about being clergy over the years, especially when it comes to Christmas Eve services, which tend to be quite packed, even in large churches, they get a disproportionate number of attendees usually, and people get really possessive of their space and try to get there early to get seats, and there's a little bit of a scrum. Well, as a clergy person, I get to sit up front. Of course, I have to work every Christmas Eve, which is awesome, but... These are things of privilege, privileged things that I get. Beware of the people who get these kinds of things, who like these kinds of things. Because the, what these scribes are doing, they're devouring widows' houses. That's pretty serious. People who no longer able to produce an income, to produce enough to care for a property or keep it up or... Um, pay off the debts on it or pay the taxes on it, have their places confiscated. And it's done perfectly legally. These scribes did everything by the book perfectly legally. They were able to take these properties, these ancestral homes, the places where these women raised their kids, and they were able to take their houses and they would have to either go live with relatives or on the streets. There was nowhere to go. There was very little social safety net other than one's biological relatives in those days. And so this is what these scribes are doing, and this is why Jesus is condemning them. They want this good life of privilege where everybody respects them, but really they're doing disrespectful things to others, which bring, dis brings dishonor and disrespect on themselves. They also say long prayers for appearance sake. They are not praying to God. They are praying to themselves. And their prayers are manipulative. They are somehow tied to the taking of the widow's houses. <clears throat> somehow, these two are tied together, and I'm not sure how. Maybe there was a religious motive for confiscating their property. Somehow, the long prayers were ways that they used to justify this kind of theft remember, just because theft is legal doesn't mean it's good. This is one thing that I grew up as a white American, that everything that was legal was good and everything illegal was bad. And there's a lot of truth to that in a lot of ways. 
laws are not made just willy-nilly. Generally, there's usually a consensus of something being harmful to society or individuals. But there are times, many times, in fact, where a law is used to do something wrong. A law is is used to justify evil deeds. When we look at the large-scale atrocities of the world, the Holocaust, the Armenian Genocide, uh, the My Lai Massacre, atrocities in war, for the most part, with a few exceptions, they are done legally with the proper authority. Someone in authority gives an order who is allowed to give those kinds of orders and atrocities happen. And then everyone's shocked and says, how could this happen? Well, it happened completely legally. And some of the really good things in this world, like sneaking Jewish people out of Europe during World War II, uh, saving people's lives is illegal. And people paid the price, legal price for that. And yet that was the right thing to do. As Dr. King said, uh, quoting St. Augustine, that an unjust law does not require someone to follow it, um, even though there's a law there. We all know this is true. If you uh, see a no trespassing sign on a fence and someone's having a heart attack on the front porch, it's okay to break that law of no trespassing to help the person that's on the front porch having a heart attack. And there's so much of that happening in our world today. They will receive the greater condemnation. It seems like the people that use their power and privilege to do terrible things are far worse than the petty criminals of this world, people who are on the margins of society doing crime. And yet, who gets the focus of crime? When we talk about crime in America, uh, the kind of crime that we punish the harshest is the crimes of theft and the crimes that are smaller, the crimes of arguments with people um, that turn into murders, um, when in fact these larger scale crimes where pe- thousands of people die um, are often overlooked in that no one ever is held accountable for those things. And then it says Jesus sits down opposite the treasury, not opposed to the treasury, although you could read that in the text. He's not quite sitting in the treasury. This would be a place where people were coming up and putting money into it. seems like there must be a time of the week or month where they put the money in all together, and they're putting money in. And this is how the temple is funded. When Nehemiah reformed the temple, he made sure that these tithes were brought to the temple. Uh, the temple was supported by tithes. Um, it was a tax in many ways, um, a tax that Jesus paid, a tax that um, Christians paid. And the rich people are putting in very large sums, which maybe to them are not that large, but are large to everybody else. And a poor widow who's had her house devoured by these scribes comes with two mites, two small copper coins, which are both worth a penny. So they're like half a penny coins. Wow. Um, You know, what, what is the place of pennies in our world today? The pandemic really killed the coin exchange. It's really hard to find coins. There's a coin shortage. No one uses them anymore. And that is... 
what's happening now. But a penny, is it worth even picking up a penny, risking hurting your lower back, we ask? So Jesus calls his disciples for this lesson. The lesson is this woman. That's the lesson. Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put more in than all who are contributing to the treasury. For all of them have contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. What Jesus is saying is that skimming off the top for God in any part of our lives, whether it's our justice, like the scribes who ostensibly are doing everything right, but they're, they're neglecting the weightiest matter of the law, that's the care for widows and orphans, or people that are out of their wealth giving a little bit of money um, and not really at all in a sacrificial way. But here, this woman has the fire, the devotion, the kind of fire that is in the followers of Jesus, that they don't care, or at least it seems that they don't care, because they contribute out of their poverty, not out of their abundance. They don't wait till they hit the lottery to give to other people. They do it in faith. And this is what Jesus' followers do. Jesus is saying, this is what I want you to do, my followers. The other reading from today is the story of Ruth, this love story of a woman who's a refugee who comes into this strange land and is finally, um, finally marries Boaz. Um, the, her mother-in-law sets her up and she uncovers his feet at the threshing floor at night and they are there together in the morning and they get married. And it's a beautiful love story. It's very real. It makes a lot of sense to, to us as loving creatures. And this is also what the widow is tied to. The widow Naomi has set up this love story as best she can with her very limited resources. She has nothing. Yet her goal in life is to find a husband for Ruth, her daughter-in-law, who has gone with her to this foreign country. And she does it. And this is what matters in life. Love. Love matters. Not just romantic love, but love where we care for each other. Love where people sacrifice for each other. Love where people see in the other person the light of God and see in them the image of God and love them deeply and, and do what they can to facilitate their flourishing. This is what love is, is seeing another person's good and trying to encourage that good in them. This is what Ruth does. This is the widow, the example of the widow. Um, she is doing this. She is giving out of her poverty. She is giving out of her limited resources. And when you do this as a follower of Jesus, you are following Jesus. You are following the kingdom of God, seeking first the kingdom of God. This is hard to do in a time of scarcity. It's hard to do in a time of anxiety. But that is the only time to do it. And Jesus calls you to do it. He calls us to do it together. Amen.
O God, whose blessed Son came into the world that he might destroy the works of the devil and make us children of God and heirs of eternal life, grant that, having this hope, we may purify ourselves as he is pure, that when he comes again with power and great glory, we may be made like him in his eternal and glorious kingdom, where he lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.